Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for today. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Bless us and speak to us personally and corporately in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want you to do something before we jump into this message. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and I want you to say these words. Neighbor, you are right where you need to be. And if that wasn't a pleasant thing, turn to the other neighbor and I want you to say that again. Neighbor, you are right where you need to be. Amen. 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 Now let's start off with this quotation. Let's start off with what Ellen White says right here because this is going to be the umbrella for this entire message. Notice what she says here with very succinct language. This is powerful stuff. There is one great central what? Truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures. Is it the Sabbath? Is it the sanctuary? Is it the state of the dead? Let's continue. Christ and him what? Crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to this theme. In other words, there's a greater emphasis and obligation upon that truth as it moves closer in relation to the center, which is Jesus Christ. I'll continue. It is only in the light of the cross that we can discern the exalted character of the law of God. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the what? Gospel. And I love what she says next. This is our message, our argument, our doctrine, our warning to the impenitent, our encouragement for the sorrowing, our hope for every what? Believer. Can you say amen to that? What a beautiful statement. And it begins to add sort of a reprioritization to all the things that we believe in, that Christ is the center of all things. In other words, it's not Jesus that leads us to the Sabbath. It's not Jesus that leads us to the sanctuary or Jesus that leads us to the state of the dead. Rather, the state of the dead leads us to the bigger picture of who Jesus is. The sanctuary leads us to a bigger picture of who Jesus is. The Sabbath leads us to a bigger picture of who Jesus is. He is our argument. He is our doctrine. He is our truth. And all truth in the entire universe hinges upon the one who is called the truth. And that's what's so powerful about Jesus. Take your Bible. We're going to take a good look at a very interesting story in Scripture. It's a story in which Jesus gives some parables. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus begins to communicate the goodness of God towards humanity. Luke chapter 15. And let's start with verse 1. This may be a familiar chapter. We're going to dive into the scriptures. And when it comes to the study of scriptures, we don't want to be mere complicit readers. We want to be conversant readers. Can you say amen to that? In other words, we want to be suspicious of the text. 
We want to study it out. We want to dig deep. We want to let the Word of God speak to us. Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Notice what the Bible says right here. Then all the tax collectors and all the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners. Now that word receive in Greek actually has to do more than just mere acceptance. It has to do when someone brings you into the family. That is the way that, com- that word is commonly used. When somebody brings you close into the family where they become like blood to you. Let's continue. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them saying, and what Jesus does next is that he begins to give Three parables. The first parable is the parable about the lost what? Sheep. The second parable is the parable of the lost what? Coin. The third parable is the parable of the lost what? The son, right? And what's so interesting, when you study out these three parables, there are four themes that begin to emerge from the study of these three parables. It is the theme of lostness. It is the theme of being sought. It is the theme of being found, and it is the theme of being celebrated or celebrating. Lost, sought, found, celebration. And what's so powerful about these three parables is that the first parable is the story of a sheep that leaves the fold. He goes outside the fold. The second parable is the parable about something that was lost inside the house. And the third parable brings together the first two. And you have two that are lost, one outside the house and one lost inside the house. And it's through these three parables that God is launching into this in-depth understanding of how He really cares about sinners. It's such a powerful thing when you study out these three stories. At the end of each one of these parables, you get this sort of build-up that begins to happen. At the end of the first parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says, and all of heaven rejoices. And in the second parable, he gets into the parable of the lost coin, and he says, angels rejoice. And then in the third parable, the implication is, The one who rejoices more than all of heaven, more than the angels themselves, is the Father. And not just the Father. You know who else? You! And it's so powerful because in this trajectory, Jesus is communicating something so amazing about the gospel to every son and daughter of Adam. What we're going to be doing is we're going to understand... First, why Jesus gave these parables. Let's go back to verse 1. Notice what the Bible says right here. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now I want you to notice two assumptions that the Pharisees had. The first assumption was this, that they were not sinners. Well, how do you know this? Because they say in their thoughts and in their words, this man eats with those kinds of people, and those kinds of people are sinners, which means we are not sinners. So they had this ideology that those people are sinners, but not us. And then the second thing Jesus, uh, the, the Pharisees and uh, Sadducees do is this. They make an assumption about the nature of God that God would not want to be around sinners. 
And so what Jesus does is he launches into this threefold attack. He begins to veil his thrust in parables. And parables have two purposes. To reveal truth to those that are looking and to conceal truth from those that have no interest. And in these parables, we begin to understand something about the immensity and the dimensions of the love of God for every single person. Let's go back to the scripture, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be taking a good look at verse 8. We're going to be taking a good look at the parable of the lost coin. The parable of the lost coin. And that is going to be our focus. The parable of the lost coin. Notice what it says in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who, what? You know what's so powerful? As I begin to study out this story, I thought to myself, what a kind of strange parable. The first parable makes sense, right? It's the parable of the shepherd that loses the sheep. Jesus, or God, was called the shepherd in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were supposed to be shepherds going after lost sheep. But then he launches into this strange analogy about a woman who loses a coin. And as I begin to study out various commentators on this very subject, why in the world did it matter that she had ten coins? Many of the commentators point out, including Ellen White alludes to this as well, that those coins were actually her wedding dowry. Her wedding dowry. Now you're thinking, what's the big deal about the wedding dowry? The wedding dowry is a symbol that you were united with the husband. And you holding on to those things and treasuring those things and appreciating those things and valuing those things was a picture of the symbol of your union with your spouse. And now it begins to make a little bit more sense why this woman was so frantic in trying to search for one coin. And I know we can get into a lot of question about why that coin got lost. Did the coin get lost simply because there was a hole in her purse? Did it get lost because someone stole it? Might have left it there? How in the world did it get lost? But the question isn't so much uh, why it got lost, but the question is why did it stay lost for a little bit of time? What do you mean by that, Now. Let's continue, and I want you to see the clue in the story itself. Luke chapter 15. Look what it says in verse 8. Luke chapter 15, verse 8. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a what? Wait a minute, let's stop right there. She does not what? Light a lamp. Now, what would be the purpose of lighting a lamp? To see. Now, why would you need to see in the house? Because it became dark. 
In other words, the reason why that coin was lost for a period of time is because it was dark inside her house. Now, you know what's so amazing about things when they become dark? Is that things become a bit uncertain. You can no longer visualize what's around you. You have to be a little bit careful. Now, I live in the city of Chowchilla. Anybody ever heard of the city of Chowchilla? Six of you. I didn't hear about it until a couple years ago, but that's where I live. And I live in the middle of an armor orchard. And I love orchards. I love walking through orchards. It's like one of those things you see on Instagram and somebody is posing in the midst of the orchards. And maybe their dog is right next to them or something, or the bird on their shoulder, or their loved one. But orchards are very beautiful places. I can walk through the orchard and it's like Cinderella. The birds come landing on my hands. The squirrels come up to me. But I'll tell you this, when it becomes dark, those orchards are very freaky places. It's like, <laughs> when I'm walking through them, you can go through these orchards and it's like, you're all of a sudden you're seeing eyes that are looking at you. Woo, woo, and it turns out to be an owl. You're thinking someone is constantly after you. And so what happens is when it becomes dark, it becomes a very scary place. And what are we beginning to understand? That this woman represented the church. It represented God's people. And in the very place that God's people were at, when it became spiritually dark, they began to lose coins. Ellen White actually hones in on this, and she says these words. She said, When the Holy Spirit is a little matter thought of, she says this, there will be seen spiritual death, spiritual declension, and spiritual darkness. When the Holy Spirit is not a matter thought of, when the Holy Spirit is not a matter prayed for, when the Holy Spirit becomes something that begins to be just a little bit down the rank when it comes to talking about spiritual things, when the Holy Spirit is not studied, there can be seen spiritual death, darkness, and declension. Notice what she says right here in the second part of that quote. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth, and notice this next word, and prosperity of the church, which would bring all other blessings in its train, is lacking, though offered in infinite plentitude. When the church becomes a dark place, it should be no surprise to us that people leave the church. It should be no surprise to us that things begin to change and people begin to leave, or it seems like people are falling away. And what Jesus was honing in on was the condition of many of God's people that they lose sight of that which He has entrusted to them, the wedding dowry, the symbol of their union with their Maker. And it's very important for us to recognize and understand this. You know, a few years ago, I began to go into the study about the Holy Spirit and about the latter rain. I began to pray for the Holy Spirit. I began to pray for the latter rain. I would be part of 10 days of Operation Global Rain, 40 days of praying for the Holy Spirit. And sometimes many of these experiences would be great. 
And many of these experiences would be phenomenal, but for a period of time, it just began to diminish. And I thought to myself, maybe my heart is just a little bit cold. And as I began to study out a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, it began to dawn on me after my studies of the Scriptures and, the Holy, uh, and of uh, the Spirit of Prophecy that what we need to do is more than just pray for the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for surrendering to the Holy Spirit. And when I simply began to adjust my prayers and I began to speak from my heart, Lord, today I want to just surrender myself to the Spirit of God amazing things begin to happen. I begin to sense more of direction and the serendipity of God's providences begin to happen. God Himself was stepping in and leading the charge when it came to my life and my ministry. Friends, I really want to challenge you. If you've been praying for the Holy Spirit, what you probably need to do is adjust a little bit and start praying, Lord, help me to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Now let's go a little bit further in this story. Let's understand some new things about this parable. Notice what it says right here. And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she, what? Finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice for me, with me. For I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who what? Repents. You see, when Jesus was looking at the sinners and tax collectors, he saw lost coins. But when he also glanced towards the Pharisees, he also saw lost coins. And as he began to look upon them, he recognized that they were all in need of the light. Now listen to me. Of the light coming a little bit closer to them. The woman, in order to find that coin, she had to light the lamp, and then she had to bring that lamp a little bit closer to the dark parts of her house. And as she began to bring that light just a little bit closer, it began to shine in that area. And all of a sudden, as she is searching through that house, as that little candle begins to flicker, there is a glimmer of light that is reflected off this area where there's some dirt. And as she begins to reach her hand towards the corner of this house, she begins to hold that coin. As she holds that coin up, it is covered with dirt. It is covered with filth. But she doesn't just look at the coin. She begins to brush off the coin. She begins to clean up the coin. And as she looks at the coin, she sees the coin that she loves. Friends, this is why the gospel is so important. Because it brings the light close to the heart of the sinner. And it offers to them hope and redemption. Amen? It's so powerful when you actually study out the gospel. You know, I was somebody early on when I became a Seventh-day Adventist. I love the study of prophecy. I still love the study of prophecy. I love studying out the sanctuary. I still love studying out the sanctuary. I love studying out the many of these beautiful truths and helping people to understand uh, the sort of this theological construction of reality in life. 
But when it came to the study of God's grace and His mercy, I began to realize this was the keeping power behind my spirituality. Amen? It wasn't knowledge. It was faith in the blood of Jesus. It's so powerful when you study out some of the Psalms. Let's go to Psalms 32. And we're going to understand something so beautiful about this psalm. I love this psalm. Many times when I found myself in that spiritual dark place, when I found myself broken as a sinner, when I found myself disconnected from God, I would race to Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, I'd find this beautiful message of redemption and hope and connection. Psalms 32. Psalms 32. Let's start with verse 1. Psalm 32, starting with verse 1. Blessed is he whose what? Transgression is forgiven. Notice this next part. Whose what? Sin is covered. Notice the third part. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not what? Impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here the Bible is describing David's reflection upon God's grace. And he says, look, when I confessed my sin, when I confessed my iniquity, when I confessed my transgressions, and that's the spectrum of anything from just missing the mark all the way to outright rebellion. He says, when I confessed this to God, He forgave me, He cleansed me, He imputed to me His righteousness. But then he begins to reflect a little bit more and he says, but this, what it, this is what it was like when I did not have that experience. Notice what it says in the next few verses. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Here, David is even describing physical effects of not giving his sin over to God. He is describing physical symptoms that he is having by not receiving the grace of God. And during this period that he is holding on to his sin, during this period where he is just disconnected from God, he begins to feel things in his body. You know, it's so interesting that the mental health crisis has just skyrocketed utterly. Why? Because sin has become a science. And when sin has become a science and there is no legitimate vent, no legitimate resolution, people have nowhere to turn and that sin begins to create death in that person's body. There's even different kinds of cancer cells that actually thrive when the body is under certain kinds of stresses. Here David is describing his bones begin to just not feel right. They begin to ache a little bit more. He begins to describe life, lifelessness in his spirituality. And during this whole time, he feels it heavy upon his body. Now friends, let me just remind you that when Jesus stepped into the Garden of Gethsemane, that he felt our sin upon him. And you know what happened to Jesus? He began to crumple in the garden. And when Jesus felt our sin, he began to collapse in the garden. And if our sin 
would buckle the knees of God. Imagine what it would do to us when it does not have a resolution. And so David is describing the effects that he is facing, how he's feeling. And in this moment of utter darkness, notice what the Bible says next. It's very beautiful. Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. You want to know something? The first step in not being lost is recognizing when you are. You hear what I just said? The first step in not being lost is recognizing when you are. And David just says, look, I just acknowledge my sin to God. I'm tired of holding on to it. I'm tired of carrying it. I'm tired of the effects upon my body and my mind. I'm tired of carrying this frustration when it seems all of life has lost its color and its beauty and its hopefulness and the certainty of the future. He's like, I'm tired of carrying this weight. And he says, I acknowledge my sin to God. And I notice, I love what it says next. It's very powerful. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And I love this next part. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And notice what it says in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time where he may, you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near to you, near him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And notice the last part of this psalm. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This was the experience that Martin Luther finally had when it dawned on him that redemption was beautiful, it was full, and it was free and accessible to him. He no longer hid himself from God. And the fear and frustration and certainty of life began to dissipate because he felt assured in the presence of God. You know, when you think about those Pharisees and Sadducees that were there in that circumstance when Jesus gave those parables, they felt that their good works recommended them to God. But I love what Ellen White says, and you can mark these words because these are right out of her own writings. She says, if we were to take everything that is good in humanity and present it as merits before God, and adding to the plan of salvation, she says, the angels would see that as treason. Treason. You can't add to this. You can't offer God anything for redemption. Redemption is something that God offers to all people. And His grace and mercy is available to all. Even those that have been in the church. Many times we think of Seventh-day Adventists because I know a little bit more. Uh, because I understand a little bit more of the dynamics of the great controversy. Because I have a little bit more insight into spirituality. Or maybe I've been leading others to Christ. That somehow the grace that met me at the very beginning has now diminished for me. Friends, the grace that was there at the very beginning of your experience is still available to you today. Can you say amen to that? And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. God's grace is amazing. 
You know, when you study out the story of those three parables, it's very remarkable because in the first parable, the shepherd loved the sheep before it was lost. What's the big deal? He loved the sheep when it was lost, and he loved the sheep after it was returned. Okay? The woman, she actually loved the coin before it was lost, and she loved the coin when it was lost, and she loved the coin after it was returned. Do you know the father loved his son before it was lost? And you're wondering, where are we going with this, Pastor Nell? The father loved his son when, it was, when he was lost, and the father loved his son when he was returned. Amen? Amen? But you know what's so beautiful about that? I am absolutely sure that shepherd, when he saw that lost sheep now return to the fold, he just looked at it with admiration. That lost sheep, when it was returned, when it was always around the other flock, he always looked at it with a bit of smile. That sheep probably even had a little bit more love. And that coin, you could just imagine that coin. When the woman looked at all the other nine coins and that one coin returned, it probably had certain marks on that coin. But that coin, oh, I know about that coin. That coin's a little bit special. Oh, that son. You can just imagine the father. When the son has returned home, maybe weeks or years have gone by, but every time he looks at that son and he hugs that son, he hugs him a little bit closer. And it's almost as if because or in spite of the fall, not because of the fall, but in spite of the fall, the love of the owner has grown exponentially for the thing that was lost after it was returned. And when you begin to study out the great plan of redemption and the great love that God has for humanity, God has done much more for humanity and His love that is infinite, His love continues to grow towards and expands around that which has been returned to Him. And throughout all of eternity, this love grows more and more within that which was loved. Friends, the story of the, of the lost coin is a beautiful story. You want to know why? Because it's all of our story. It's all of our story. It's the story of Zac Zac uh, Zacchaeus. And the story of Zacchaeus is a very interesting story. Zacchaeus was curious about Jesus. He had heard about this man. And as Zacchaeus went to go search and seek after Jesus, and when Jesus came to his house, it's very interesting what Jesus says at the very end of that whole passage. He kind of throws a left hook for the readers. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Wait a minute. Wasn't Zacchaeus the one seeking for Jesus? Friends, it was grace that was looking for Zacchaeus. You read the story of Noah 
And the Bible tells us that Noah found grace and Noah walked with God. But the reality is it was grace that found Noah. It was grace that came to the world and looked upon the world and saw lostness. You read what it says in Psalms 23, it is goodness and mercy that follows me all the days of my life. It's not me searching after goodness and mercy. It's goodness and mercy coming to me. It is grace that comes out to me. And grace that is searching for me, it is grace that is seeking to find me. Many times in my spiritual experience when I have gone through utter failures and moments of darkness, when that experience happens, I look back and it seems all the bright spots of my past seem to be dark. And I can't see anything good in my life. And when I'm in those moments in that condition, I look back and I look at all the things that have led me to this point of brokenness. And then when I look into the future, it's dark as well. And it seems that judgment inevitably will come. It seems that all there is is uncertainty. And I have finally lost my way. But when that grace comes to this lost coin, that grace steps in, cleans off the dust, and you know what's so amazing? Those coins always bore the image of the reigning power. When God cleans off the dust, you begin to recognize the image of the Creator still, still on you. And that grace comes into the very experience. And it's like the light switches begin to turn on and those burdens are lifted and redemption full and free is there. And the frustrations and the uncertainty seem to dissipate. This is what God's redeeming grace does. It's more than just forgiveness, but it reaches down to where we are at and it picks us up and restores us again. You know what's so powerful about the story of Mephibosheth and David? Mephibosheth, you may know the story in 1 Samuel. It's the story of one of Saul's son, whose family was an enemy of David and threatened his kingdom. And when David extended grace to Mephibosheth, one of Jonathan's sons. He restored to him all that his father had lost, but the most amazing part is, he said, you have a place at my table. Amen? Amen. But you know when you look at Jewish tables, what's so amazing? Ancient Jewish tables? The person would be brought right up to where the food was being served on these racks. And you would see the top part of the person. But the feet would not be visible. And when Mephibosheth would sit at David's table, the king's table, no one could see the lame part of him there. It was hidden. 
And all that people saw was the princely part of Mephibosheth. God's grace brings us to the Lord's table. It washes away the junk and the filth of our life, restores us into settled relationship with God. Noah didn't walk towards God, he walked from grace. And this is the grace that sustains us each and every day. And you can walk out of this church, you can go straight to Pollock, you can go straight home, but you can walk out with the sun shining a little bit more beautiful, with the air feeling a little bit more cleaner, with the joy in your heart being even greater, knowing that your Redeemer lives and ever lives to make intercession for you. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed. As we linger before God, Father in heaven, we just thank you. And even though we may feel like lost sheep, lost coins, lost children, we thank you, you have never stopped loving us. And the same grace that was there at the very beginning of our experience is the same grace that is enough for us today. And Lord, whatever kind of lostness we feel, whether it's in life, decisions, our spirituality, the future, we thank you that even though those around us forget that your eye is still upon us and that every person who's here right now is here because you want them to know that you still value and love them from the very beginning. May we walk out with joy, the joy of salvation, the joy of redemption, the joy of peace, because of Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.